Pastor Lynn has asked that I read from James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to James chapter 2, 14 through 26. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, stay warm, and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without works, and I will show you You faith by my works. You believe that God is one. Good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. Senseless person, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works in offering Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was active together with his works, and by his works, faith was made complete. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see, a person is justified by work, is, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, Rahab the prostitute, also justified by works in receiving the messengers and sending them out by a different route. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. Good morning, everybody. You know, one of my favorite sections uh, in the Bible is the uh, Sermon on the Mount that's uh, found in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And in those three chapters, uh, Jesus lays out uh, the life of a disciple. And I like to uh, practice what some have called becoming the 13th disciple. And so I like to put myself into those Bible stories and just think through what would have been like to have been a part of that crowd and to have heard that teaching of Jesus uh, that morning or afternoon. You and I, if we were there, we would have been part of a crowd and we're at the base of a mountain that's right on the Sea of Galilee. Unlike here in the 21st century, when it was time for Jesus to teach, he walked up that mountain a ways, which is actually just a grassy knoll that goes up. And when he got to the point where the place where he wanted, he didn't stand, he would sit. And that would let us know he's ready to teach. And so we were walked up as close as we could get to him. And what was created was an amphitheater as his voice came down the hillside and reflected back up off the water of the Sea of Galilee. So you had an auditorium right there out in, the, uh, the, out in nature. Most of us have already spent some time with Jesus. We've watched him. We've heard some of the things that he's had to teach before this particular day. And uh, we have an opinion as to who this Jesus is, or at least we're starting to form an opinion. 
For many of us, we still think he's a great rabbi and a master teacher, certainly somebody worth listening to. To some of the rest, he's more than that. He's actually a prophet. He has come and he's got a new word for us directly from God himself. And there's a handful of us that are beginning to look at the possibility that he's the Messiah, that he is actually the anointed Savior of Israel. And so we gather around and Jesus begins to teach. And we all agree on this, however. We've never met anybody like him. Jesus is unlike anybody any of us have ever known. After all, he's performing miracles. He's walking up to people who are deaf and they've got hearing back. They walk up to the blind and then they can see. He walks up to the lame and they can walk away. Miracles like this haven't been seen in Israel for seven or eight hundred years. Starting with the Beatitudes, Jesus begins to move through a series of topics And it doesn't take very long as we're listening to him talking about how to love enemies and pray for enemies and give our cloak and all of these other different teachings to have a purity of mind as well as a purity in action that we realize that this teaching of Jesus, this life that he is describing to us is brand new. In that day and age in which a rabbi normally would sit down and he would teach by quoting other teachers, other rabbis who had lived before, and then we would sit around and have a discussion or a debate about what we thought of the passage. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus is teaching with a sense of authority that we are not used to. And he's describing a life that we've never known existed. He's telling us, this is the life of my true follower. He gets to the end of his teaching in chapter 7 of Matthew, and Jesus gives a series of challenges and even warnings to us. You've been listening to all this, he said. Now now it's time to respond. And what he lays out for us are a series of four contrasts, or four comparisons. And he's saying, okay, you're, you're this or you're that. You're this or you're that. And there's four of these that he lays out for us at the end of the chapter. There's the narrow and wide gate. There's that narrow gate represents deciding I'm going to follow Jesus and his teachings. And the wide gate represents I'm going to continue to follow the world and its values. And he says, you have to choose one gate or the other. And his point is, I, Jesus, in my teaching, this is the only way to God. The only way to God is through me. Then he talks about true and false prophets and that there's fruit, just like a tree. There's good fruit, there's bad fruit. There's edible fruit and there's poisonous fruit. And he says, with true and false prophets, you will judge them by their fruit. And a good prophet, a true prophet, produces good fruit. And he goes on to true and false disciples. And he says, if you're a true disciple, you will not just give me lip service, but you will do the will of my Father. Then he gets to the wise and foolish builders. And he says, if you want to be wise, then you need to build your life on me and my teaching. And then you will have firm foundation for how you live. And so he says, here are the marks of a true disciple. You put your faith in Jesus Christ as the one way to God. Then you 
your lives begin to produce good spiritual fruit, and then you seek to always do the will of the Father, and then you will listen to and obey the words and commands of Jesus. And he says, here's true saving faith. It's believing that everything I have said about myself is true. And then out of that faith, producing spiritual fruit that reflects who I am. And so it's faith and belief that Jesus is exactly who he says he is. But then it's a life of showing spiritual fruit that reflect who he is. Well, as we come to James chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, you hear the echo of Jesus' voice and words coming out from that Sermon on the Mount. In fact, I'm convinced that James is thinking about the Sermon on the Mount and the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount as he's writing this portion of chapter 2. Like the Sermon on the Mount, James has been laying out some challenging teaching. If you look at what James has said and you commit yourself to obedience, you commit yourself to following it, this is going to change your life. He's talked about having endurance and perseverance and joy as you go through the challenges and trials of life. He has said that you need to resist the enticement to sin and pursue purity and righteousness in your life. He says you need to be passionate about both knowing and obeying the Word of God. You need to show compassion in meeting the needs of the poor. Do not judge other people using the values and perspective of this world, but be welcoming and inclusive to everybody that God brings through the doors of the church. Control your words, he's going to say in chapter 3, because controlling your words and controlling what you say is a sign of maturity. Then he's going to talk about showing each other things like humility and meekness and patience. And then he's going to conclude by saying you need to be quick to pray for each other and with each other with faith that God hears and answers according to his timing and wisdom. And in these verses that we're looking at this morning, this is James's moment where he's going to say, I have a challenge for you and a warning. These things are not for you just to talk about in a Sunday school class or debate on how you follow through. And they certainly are not optional. But these things, like the teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, are biblical principles and commands that are meant to be embraced and then followed. And instead of placing his challenge at the end of his letter, like Jesus placed at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, James puts it here approximately in the middle of his book. It's almost like a pause. And like Jesus, James lays out his challenge in a contrast. In a comparison, as we go through these books, uh, through these verses, rather, um, in uh, chapter 2, 14 to the end of the chapter, James is going to say, there is a true living faith that brings salvation and transformation. But there is a false and dead faith that is useless and powerless to save. There's a true living faith that will bring salvation and transformation. But there is also a false and dead faith that's useless and powerless to save. You are in the midst of experiencing one or the other. 
So before we actually get into the contrast and walk through what is often misunderstood and because it's a difficult passage, sometimes ignored, (laughs) we need to understand two key words that James uses here because if you, a lot of the misunderstanding of the passage comes because we don't understand these two words. The first word that we need to understand is the word faith. Now, if you were reading Paul, that word faith means a complete saving faith in Jesus Christ. But that's not what James means by the word faith. When James is using the word faith, he is talking about intellectual belief in biblical truth. It's an intellectual belief in a biblical truth. But it only goes to the intellect. We can take that word faith, and as we walk through it, we can put that word belief. I believe this is true. And that's the point that James is making with the word, and that's really important. I've known people, and so have you, that will say, like, yeah, I believe God exists. They might even say, I believe Jesus existed. I believe Jesus went to the cross. I believe Jesus rose from the dead. I believe that Jesus has promised to return But we've come to understand that those are intellectual beliefs, and as we look at their lives and their practices, we realize there's probably not saving faith there, just intellectual belief. And so that's faith. Then there's the word deeds. You and I look at the word works, or especially if that's in your version, and we've been taught works are bad, faith is good. (laughs) Faith means you trust Jesus for salvation. Works means you're trying to earn your salvation, but that's not what James is talking about here. When he has the word works, or in the NIV, deeds, that's good. That's talking about righteous behavior that conforms to God's word. It's righteous behavior that conforms to God's word. These are acts of obedience to Scripture. This is spiritual fruit that demonstrates the sincerity of what we say we believe. And so here, works or deeds, that's a good thing. That is the spiritual fruit. That's the acts of obedience. That's, I'm living my life according to what Scripture says. And so faith is intellectual, deeds are good. Keep that in mind, and now this passage will probably start to make a little more sense to you as we walk through it. So let's start with this dead False faith that's useless and powerless to save. Starts off in verse 14 with a rhetorical question. He says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? We can take that rhetorical question and we can rework it again as we've looked at the definition of these words. This is his question. What good is having correct biblical belief without any spiritual fruit? What good is it to have biblical belief without any biblical behavior? Can having just the belief without any behavior, without any fruit, really save you? That's his question. And it's a rhetorical question that carries the idea that the answer is no. That kind of faith has no value. And therefore, that kind of faith cannot save you. So he goes on to give two reasons for this with two different pictures, two different illustrations. First is this. 
Dead faith is all talk and no action. Dead faith is all talk and no action. Look, picking it up in verse 15, it says, Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by actions, is dead. Paints this picture of a church, again, just like last week we saw with the rich man and the poor man, we're at a church service. Because this is a brother or sister we're talking about here. And this person, this man or woman, is living in poverty. The Without clothes and daily food actually carries the idea of inadequate food and clothing. This is somebody on a daily basis does not get enough food to eat and they don't have the proper clothes to stay warm. Then this person comes along that's a professing Christian and demonstrates the all talk, no action because they've got great words. Go in peace. This is sort of a flippant form of God bless you. And they're saying God bless you because I'm not going to. (laughs) And then they go, keep warm and well fed. The idea of that comment is, hey, I sure hope you can find some food and clothing. Good luck. And James says, what good is that? What good is that? What good is it if you're going to just say these things but do nothing to meet the need? Because this fails to demonstrate even the most biblical form of biblical love. And so this rhetorical question of what good is it is not at all. If I walk up to a poor person with obvious needs that I can meet and all I have are good words and hope for them and, hey, good luck and God bless because I'm not going to do anything. Maybe he will. That doesn't do anything to meet the need. Now, I find it really interesting that James is using the illustration because it's very possible this kind of thing was happening in the churches he's writing to. Remember last week? Rich guy comes in, he gets deferential treatment, the poor person goes in, and they're kind of neglected to the side. Stand in the back, if you remember. And remember, James is a key member and leader of the Church of Jerusalem. Go back to that beginning part of Acts. James is there, and he's watching as key members of the church, like Barnabas, sell land and property and possessions and then take that money and bring it to the apostles and that money is used and distributed to meet needs within the church. He was a part of that. He was there as in Acts chapter 4 it says that God's grace was so powerfully at work in them, that is in the believers, that there were no needy persons among them for from time to time those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone who had need. James was a part of that. We mentioned that probably some of the people receiving this letter had been in that church in Jerusalem at one time or another. They saw this happen and so James is painting this contrast. You saw what Jerusalem was And you know what you're doing. And it just hammers this point home. What good is it? 
And it's also good to look at verse 17 and 26 together to understand what James means by faith is dead. This faith is dead. Notice in verse 17 it says, In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. Look down at verse 26. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. What James is talking about here is picture going into the room in which a person has just died. The body's still there. Looks like they're asleep, so it looks like they're still with us. But the reality is there's no life there. He's saying, if you're the kind of professing Christian that I'm talking about here, you sound like an authentic believer, you have the right doctrinal beliefs, you know the Christian words to say in certain situations, but there's no action, there's no tangible evidence in your life of biblical behavior or of spiritual fruit, then like that body in the room, there's no life here. There's no salvation here. Because it's useless. And so he says the conclusion is belief alone, which is not accompanied by spiritual fruit of biblical behavior, is dead. Dead faith is all talk and no action, but dead faith has knowledge, but not conviction that leads to salvation. And then we get to the second story. Picking up in verse 18, he says, But someone will say, You have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. James now turns to an unlikely witness for his argument here. He turns to demons. You want to know that what I'm saying is true? Look at the demons. Satan and the demons have belief. They're not atheists. Satan and demons know more about God than we do in some ways. Satan and demons know the Word of God. They're not ignorant. Satan and demons know exactly who Jesus Christ is. Every time Jesus exercised a demon in his ministry, out he popped and said, Oh, Son of God. They know that God exists, they know who Jesus is, and they know the Bible is true. But this knowledge did not lead them to conviction and commitment to God. In fact, they chose to rebel against God. And now they shudder in fear because they know in the end they're going to face the judgment of God. The interesting thing here is that James is referring to a key scripture of the Jewish faith. Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5, that's known as the Shema. Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. If you're an Orthodox Jew, you say these two verses at least two times a day. Verse 4 of Deuteronomy 6 is that, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's an acknowledgement that the God of the Bible is the one true God. Then verse 5 is our response. Verse 5 is the verse that says that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. The point that James is making is that demons believe verse 4. They believe 
that the Lord our God, the Lord is one. God exists. And He's the one true God, the God of Israel. But they have not responded with verse 5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. So they have belief, but they don't have response. They have belief, but they don't have salvation. Because their belief does not lead to conviction that leads to salvation. And so James says at the beginning of those verses in verse 18, you want to prove your faith in God is real without demonstrating your love for God through obedience? I will show you that my faith in God is real through loving obedience. Now, it's important to note that James is not saying that his biblical behavior, that these acts of loving obedience are what produces salvation. It's not what he's saying at all. He's saying that these acts of obedience are the results of his new life in Jesus Christ. They're the result of that relationship in Christ. And because of his relationship with Christ is authentic and real, out from that flow the deeds. Out of that flows the fruit. Out of that flows the obedience. Paul says the same thing in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. One of the reasons, again, we have some misunderstanding sometimes with this is because we have a tendency to go Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 and we forget 10 is in the context. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. There's verses 8 and 9. But then comes verse 10. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Paul says, first of all, you're not saved by your faith, you're saved by the grace of God. That's important. The grace of God that flows from the cross and flows from the empty tomb that brings forgiveness and eternal life. Faith is the channel by which God's grace flows into our lives. It is the connection that connects us to God through Christ and His grace. Having made us new in Christ, Paul says, God now begins to produce good works by that same grace. And those good works give evidence of God's presence and work in our lives. And that's what James is teaching here. He's teaching that there is a true saving faith that brings salvation and the fruit of loving obedience. And like the dead faith, he has two illustrations here that we'll close with this morning. He's got the illustration of two very well-known but very different Old Testament characters, Abraham and Rahab. Gives the example of Abraham starting in verse 20. He says, You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. 
Genesis 11 and 12, God tells this guy named Abraham to leave his country near the Persian Gulf and go to a land that God will show him, and that ends up being Palestine or the present-day Israel. He also promises the 75-year-old man and his wife, Sarah, that they're going to have a son. And the descendants of that son will become a great nation. A few years after this, Abraham and Sarah have been in the promised land for a while. And God appears to Abraham and he repeats the promise to him. And the Bible says that Abraham believed God and God credited that faith as righteousness. There's his belief. There's his faith. I believe what God has said is true and will happen. Abraham indeed has a son, names him Isaac, and when Isaac is a teenager, God comes and tells Abraham, take Isaac up onto the specific mountain and there sacrifice him on an altar. As the two of them leave their, go there and leave a group of ser- servants who've gone with them at the base of that mountain, Abraham says something very interesting. He says, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over here. We will worship and then we will come back to you. The book of Hebrews fills in what's going on here. In Hebrews chapter 11, it tells us that Abraham believed that if he went forward and killed Isaac, that God would raise Isaac from the dead because that's the only way God could fulfill that promise. Because God could not fulfill the promise through a dead Isaac. And so if Isaac dies, God will raise him from the dead. His faith in God's promise is what led to his act of obedience. And we know that Isaac does not die because God is going to provide a ram who will be a sacrifice in his place. And look at verse 22 again. It says, You see that his, that is Abraham's faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. He says that Abraham's belief in God's promise is what led to his obedience. And when you take his belief and you take his act of obedience together, you've got complete saving faith. You've got Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. You have got... Saved by God's grace through faith as a, as a free gift, followed by grace that produces spiritual fruit that God desires. Then he has the example of Rahab. Verse 25, he says, In the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. In the book of Joshua, he's taken over from Moses after the death of Moses and leading the people of Israel, and they're getting ready to enter into Palestine or Israel. And Joshua sends two spies to Jericho to, um, as a scouting mission before they actually do the invasion because Joshua knows this fortified city will need to be destroyed if they're going to conquer the land. While the spies are in the city, their presence is discovered, and the two of them take shelter in the home of a prostitute named Rahab. Instead of turning them over to the authorities, Rahab hides them and then helps them to escape. In so doing, she's putting herself at great personal risk because if she's caught, not only her, but her entire family are going to be killed. And she explains why she did this to the two spies in Joshua 2, starting in verse 8. 
It says, Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Parenthesis, that's Rahab's declaration of faith. Getting back to Scripture, it says, Now then, she says, Please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell where we're going, what we're doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. Rahab believed that the God of Israel was the one true God and that he was going to give this land, that land that she was standing in, to Israel. And based on that belief, she, put, she takes action, she hides the spies in hope that she and they will be saved from destruction. And they are. You know, James couldn't have chosen two more different people for his illustration. A rich nobleman who becomes revered as the father of the Jews. And a Gentile prostitute living in a doomed city. But what James is saying is that both of them are united by their faith. Both of them are believers. They believe in who God is. They believe in what God has said. And they entrust themselves to God's promise. And out of that comes a life of faithful, fruitful obedience. So what is James, and more importantly, what does God want us to do with all this? There are two things that God doesn't want us to do this morning, and this is really important. This may be almost as important as what he wants you to do with it. Number one, God does not want us to look at each other and decide and become evaluators of each other's fruit. You may look like an apple tree, but I don't see any good apples on you. You know, that is not what this is about. But he also doesn't want us to be constantly questioning the authenticity of our own faith. He doesn't want us living with doubt. He doesn't want us striving on our own to try to make sure we do enough that God will be pleased. That's not it at all. What God wants you and I to do is to make sure that we have responded fully to the invitation of Jesus. I think the most beautiful invitation of Jesus in terms of how it is said is in Matthew chapter 11, and we're going to close with just a couple of moments in, the, in, the, in Matthew chapter 11. Love this invitation of Jesus. Matthew chapter 11. Most of you will be well familiar with these verses. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. 
come to me has to do with what Jesus has claimed about himself. It is admitting that I am a sinner and my sin has separated me from God. That I believe that Jesus Christ is everything he said he is. That he is the eternal son of God who took on humanity, who went to the cross, who died for my sins, and out of that death can come forgiveness for me. He rose from the dead in victory over death, and out of that can come eternal life for me. And that he has promised that anyone who will put faith in him, true saving faith in him, will experience forgiveness and eternal life. But here's the part. Then I repent. I acknowledge that I have been facing away from God. If God's behind me, I've been going this way. I've been doing my own thing to do my own thing my own way. Repentance is an actual 180 degree in which I face God and say, God, I want to be in a right relationship with you and I want to do life your way. And then I receive Christ, come into my life and be my Savior. That's coming to Jesus. But notice he also says, when he says the result of that is I'll give you rest. You will be in a right relationship with my Father, held in his hand, resting in his love, experiencing his care. And then he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. These are the deeds that James is talking about. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me is walk with me in a life of loving obedience to my Father. Walk with me, Jesus says, in loving obedience to my Father. And notice, you will find rest for your souls. You will experience true saving faith. Coming and walking. And James would say, that's what I'm talking about. That invitation, that's what I'm talking about. You know, like Abraham, you and I are on a spiritual journey with God if we've experienced living faith that brings salvation and change. We grow one step at a time, over time, and we mature, hopefully, we become like more and more like Jesus Christ over time. And along that way, we will have our spiritual successes. We'll have our moments of growth. We'll have our moments of doing exactly what God has called us to do. And we'll have moments in which we will give in to our human nature and we will fall flat on our faces. And Jesus Christ reaches down and says, get back up and continue walking. And if you study the life of Abraham, you see that cycle of man growth Failure, growth, failure, but it's always three steps forward, two steps back, net gain, one step. (laughs) And just forward you go. And God, through the voice of his son Jesus says, come to me. Come to me. And then he says, follow me. I trust that you have had that time in your life where you've come to Jesus. Where you've admitted that sinfulness, you've believed in everything Jesus said, 
that you have made a moment of repentance in which you turn to God and say, Lord, I want to be right with you and I want to walk with you. And I know the only way to do that is through your son, Jesus Christ. So I receive him into my life. He is now my savior. Hope you've done that. And if you haven't, you and I need to talk. And then we need to be on that walk of taking the yoke of Jesus and walking with him. And the invitation of Jesus is not harsh. (laughs) If you rest, I'm meek, I'm gentle, walk with me. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for Christ. We thank you that in him we can experience forgiveness. And then through him, Father, we experience eternal life with you. And then by that same grace, we can walk with Jesus in that loving obedience to what you've given us in your word. And it brings freedom. It brings rest. It can bring peace. It brings us to be right where you desire us to be. Life is still hard, but we have the joy and the assurance that we walk that challenging and difficult life sometimes with you. And so, Father, may we truly rest in who we are in your Son, and then may we truly walk with a loving faithfulness with him. And it's in his name that we pray. And together the family of God says, Amen.